This is In Tune, the in-series podcast, opening up to you your own in-series opera and more, an oasis of intimate, innovative, and inspiring ideas through music, theater, art, and opera. We're recording on October 3rd. I can't believe it's already it's already October. Uh, and this is an introduction, look inside episode. We're going to be talking about uh, Figaro and Four Quartets, which is the current show we're working on. It opens October 20th. Uh, we're really excited. We're in the midst of heavy rehearsals for it. And I'm going completely off book, off script, uh, just to give you a slight introduction to it. I know some of these podcasts have gotten on the lengthy side, so I'm going to try to keep this one a little brief. Also, it's a busy time around here, so we can use every minute possible to be to be in the trenches doing, doing the work. Uh, Figaro and Four Quartets is a blending of Mozart's arguably most famous opera, La Nozze di Figaro, uh, and the final work of poetry by American uh, expat to, to the United Kingdom poet T.S. Eliot. Perhaps not his most famous work, though Though it's, it's quite a prominent piece of work after The Wasteland and maybe the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Uh, it's his final work of poetry, and some would consider his masterpiece. It's widely considered to be his sort of farewell to poetry written uh, just before, the, before World War II. Uh, when he was suffering from from a great illness. Now, why these two pieces? What do they What do they have to say to each other? Why Why are they in conversation in this this new work that we're making? Um, that is a tricky question, and it's one that I've been wrestling with a lot lately uh, as we make the piece, um, because I know part of my job is to to clarify and to reveal uh, the connections between disparate works that we're bringing together. Uh, the Marriage of Figaro is uh, the first opera in what's con called the Duponte trilogy. These are three operas uh, by Mozart uh, with text by Lorenzo de Ponte, the poet, um, scoundrel poet. He later uh, av avoided uh, uh, taxes and had to flee from Vienna. Uh, ended up in the UK, that didn't go very well, and he was thrown into debtor's prison. Uh, he was then uh, shipped off to America where he was a grocer, was a green grocer in nascent Manhattan. And uh, one day, uh, as the story goes, one day someone recognized him, or you were the great Lorenzo de Ponte at the grocery store. And he became a, a professor, I believe, at um, at Columbia University. Uh, it's also said that Maria Malibran, who uh, was the daughter of um, Garcia, the famous tenor, who had sung for Rossini, and he had two daughters, um, both amazing mezzo-sopranos, maybe the most famous singers of, of their, certainly their time, if not all time, uh, the Maria Malibran and uh, Pauline Verdot, uh, Viardot. Um, and that family, it's reported, were, were in Manhattan at some point when the girls were young and performed parts of Don Giovanni for the aged de Ponte at the time. <laughs> Marriage of Figaro is the first of these. It's based on a play by Beaumarchais, um, a trilogy of plays by Beaumarchais, I should say, that follow the uh, 
machinations of the relationship between uh, a count in Seville, uh, his, it's hard to say what he is, his friend or barber or servant, Figaro, um, the count's uh, love interest, uh, Rosina, who becomes the Contessa Almaviva uh, when she marries him, uh, a young page named Carabino, uh, an old lawyer named Bartolo, um, an old maid that then becomes married to Bartolo named Berta and one named Marceline in, in another opera renamed. Um, a whole host of characters that um, Beaumarchais wrote about in a series of plays that explored um, class politics at a time when, of course, uh, how um, the world viewed, the Western world viewed class and justice um, was shifting. And I'm not going to use the podcast now to get into a discussion of the French Revolution and the importance of Beaumarchais' plays, because for me, Figaro actually isn't about any of these things. What Mozart does that I find is so amazing is he writes, um, he writes an opera based on a play that is either a sort of parlor comedy, almost an old coward sort of parlor comedy, um, with all the tropes of high Baroque opera, of opera seria with mistaken identity and um, in the dark people hiding and love interests shifting. Um, it's either that or it's a political play. He writes a piece that is on the surface either of these things, amazingly maybe both, it would be amazing to combine both into one piece, but the Marriage of Figaro is even more amazing because its music is about something much deeper. And I've always sensed that Figaro is about the tendency of life, of the life force, to expand, to become more joyous, to become more full. Whereas Don Giovanni is about a destructive power in life for things to um, collapse in on themselves, to destroy themselves. And uh, as all the characters do in Don Giovanni, and Cosi Vantute is about the thing that is between that living and dying. It's about love and the nature of love and, and both the beautiful but also the, the painful, disturbing nature of love. Figaro, uh, for me, isn't about the narrative, and, and the, the reason I love it so much is because I don't actually care about the stories of these characters at all. That sounds like a strange thing to say, but what I mean is I care deeply about the characters, and yet I'm not interested in the story. I'm not interested in their character arcs. Uh, the music moves me to uh, a different plane, a plane that uh, is pure emotion and isn't based on uh, narrative. And Figaro, of course, as, as all the De Ponte operas are, are the sort of works that we in opera spend our entire lives wrestling with. A singer, m much like Shakespeare is for a, um, a sort of Shakespeare company that no longer exists, those sort of touring companies that existed in the late 19th and early 20th century, where a company of players would spend their whole lives performing the same play. And as they performed them, they'd move up. So someone might 
uh, let's take Lear, for example, having just done the R. Viva Verdi. Someone might, in their early days, play um, Edmund or Edgar, and then they would move up to eventually play Gloucester, and then they'd move up to uh, eventually play the Fool or uh, finally the King Lear. Uh, and it's the same for singers. Many singers, young singers, will sing Antonio or Bartolo, and then as they become more confident, they may sing Figure, or the voice may change, and they may sing um, the Count. Or for the women, uh, you could easily sing Barbarina as a young girl, Susanna, the voice fills out, you become a Contessa, and uh, I saw some very fine final performances by older sopranos singing Marcellina. Uh, that's always struck me as quite poignant and quite powerful about the piece. And as a director, uh, when I've considered what I wanted to do with Figaro, a concept in my head has always been that the four principal couples of Figaro are actually the same couple at different points in a relationship and different periods of life. Um, and what would it be if the piece didn't just only explore this, but actually showed the characters as the same couple at different different stages and ages of life. So that Carabino and Barbarina become Figaro and Susanna, become Conte and Contessa, become Bartolo and Marcellina. And in that way, it explores a universal experience of aging, of coming to understand love and the universe and the nature of our internal selves uh, with greater depth as we, as we grow older. Um, now that's, that's hard to do in a traditional production of Figaro uh, and luckily I never attempted to do that because I don't think I would have been successful. Um, what I mean is that Figaro as a, as a uh, narrative piece is very dense. It has a lot of story and it would be very difficult to show that story in a way that also had this uh, concept over it of the four couples as, as one couple. That being said, in creating a devised piece like Figaro and Four Quartets, um, I'm given the freedom to break it apart and to take out uh, that narrative and to use just music, pure music, to explore pure emotion. And themes that the music touches on on a deeper level that the narrative doesn't. And those themes for me are memory, are the strangeness of time, our regret and loss and that sort of ineffable quality to true joy which is both pain and um, peace at once. Uh, I have often referred to a, a favorite story from Peter Pan where it's, it's at the end of, of the novel of Pan and Wendy has the uh, head of Peter Pan in her lap and the text says that she laughed at it all um, but they were wet smiles. That sort of experience of smiles through tears is, I think, at the essence of what the emotional quality of the marriage of Figaro is. Um, and one only has to listen to the exquisite, transcendental, unforgettable final, uh, final chorus uh, to, to realize that that's the case with Figaro. Those themes, to me, are the same themes in T.S. Eliot in the four quartets. Now the four quartets are um, four poems, each with five movements. And T.S. Eliot 
specifically uses a musical language when talking about these poems. He calls them the, uh, the different subsections of the poem movements. And he talks about the experience of reading them being like the experience of listening to a quartet where different strands of melody or of accompaniment pop out um, and drift back in. Uh, he's writing a sort of chamber music, and he even thought about calling the the works uh, sonatas and decided that that was too musical. Uh, they deal largely with uh, the inability of language to ultimately express emotion, and they deal with time. They deal with um, how time can be experienced in different subjective states, how past and future seem so real at some times, and yet they don't actually exist. Um, they are, poetically speaking, the most profound exploration of that strange nature of ta time that I know. Uh, this is interesting to me because I've long been uh, curious about how we experience time and how music makes us experience time in different ways. Uh, Mo both Mozart and Eliot were writing at shifts in paradigms, in the way we as a larger human body uh, thought about a variety of issues, but specifically time in this case. So Mozart, of course, is composing uh, within the Enlightenment, well into the Enlightenment, but music always catches up a little later to philosophical mu movements than does, uh, say, literature or definitely uh, visual arts. Um, Mozart's writing at a time where Cartesian, that is uh, from the philosophy of Descartes, Cartesian thinking had changed uh, the way we viewed nature, and there, there came to be a belief that nature could be viewed like the clock. He's not composing so far after the invention of the clock and the idea that nature can be uh, understood by understanding the precise building blocks. And if you know all the building blocks, then they add up to the larger shape, which is nature, and you'll understand nature. The same with clock, that time can be divided into small, quantifiable, measurable uh, units, and that even the clock as a mechanism uh, can be understood because if you understand all the gears, all the gears will inevitably add up to the whole, which can then be understood. This sort of mechanistic thinking uh, was, was new and was uh, catching the public conscious by, by fire when, when Mozart was composing. And the musical style from the high Baroque to the classical reflects this. The high Baroque has entwining uh, voices. It's a horizontal pattern. Um, it's about different experiences of time happening simultaneously. You can think of a Bach fugue, and particularly fugues where subjects are presented uh, in retrograde or inversion or twice as slow over top of each other. It's a layered sort of uh, ecosystem. The classical style is about reducing um, those phrases to uh, vertical points that is small units that then add up to bigger units that then can be divided into other units. Um, but in that way, it's very similar to the Cartesian clock model, and that's how Mozart was composing. Eliot, by contrast, of course, was uh, writing uh, after the, the work of Einstein and the birth of quantum 
quantum mechanics and um, the theory of relativity had shifted the way people were understanding time. So it's important to remember that Eliot isn't um, writing poetry in a bubble, but he's writing within a whole shift in the public consciousness about how time, uh, the nature of time, how time is experienced, that uh, all times can exist simultaneously, or perhaps time can go backwards, or perhaps, perhaps um, time can bend and be slower and faster and not perceived as an objective experience. Um, in this way, what Eliot's imagining, uh, based on what Einstein's uh, theories might suggest, make my vision of, of the four couples of, of uh, the marriage of Figaro that happened to meet on this one day uh, actually possible. Uh, for me, this is the nexus point of these two works, that, that I sense that they have themes which speak to each other, which uh, amplify each other, and that they're also connected by this image of time as something that exists between a fixed point and a, uh, a range of points, um, almost, almost uh, like Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, that by considering the piece, the audience becomes uh, an actor upon the piece. Uh, so, so what the piece actually is then is a collection of, of musical moments, the most beloved musical moments from The Marriage of Figaro, and interwoven in there are excerpts from the uh, four quartets of T.S. Eliot. Uh, the cast is uh, four couples. The orchestra is four instruments, a string quartet. And in addition to that, we have a, an actor, our own Brian J. Shaw, um, being the voice of the poet, not specifically Eliot, but, but the poetic spoken voice, the textual voice of the piece. But one still wants to give the work an overall shape, a structure. Uh, and to do this, we delve further into this patterning of four. Um, in writing the four quartets, this was also Eliot's process. The piece is modeled on four elements, um, but it's also modeled on uh, the seasons. And we use the seasons as a sort of uh, shaping to our piece. So our first section explores the relationship of Barbarina and Carabino, and this is the spring section. And then the second section, Figaro and Susanna, and that's the summer section, and Conte and Contessa, and that's the autumn section. And finally, uh, the relationship, the older relationship between Marcellino and Bartolo, which is the winter section. And then those are four movements, four seasons, but just like T.S. Eliot's uh, poem in which each quartet had five movements, we have a fifth movement, which is the finale to the act four of Figaro. And for us, it's the scene in which all those uh, older and younger versions of themselves happen to meet on one magical day. And, and that's another allusion to the fact that Beaumarchais' Marriage of Figaro play is subtitled uh, uh, One Fine Day, One Mad Day. And so these couples in our version happen to meet on one mad day, the older and younger versions of themselves. Uh, the imagery that we project um, is quite special as well. So the set for this piece is uh, uh, telescoped uh, theater flats, just like you'd see in a Baroque theater. It copies a very old, very traditional uh, stage technology. 
And then we use very contemporary uh, projection technology, a technology that uh, corrects for the angles and makes a two-dimensional image then three-dimensional. And what that depicts is a single scene, a field, but a field that over the course of our show goes through the entire seasons. Flowers grow, trees bud, then the buds turn to, to leaves, there's a shower of rain, the leaves begin to turn uh, colors of gold and red and orange and they fall from the tree and the snows come. Um, and at the same time that we're going through four seasons, we're also going through an, a single day. So the piece begins at, at dawn and we enter the fifth movement at dusk. And in that fifth movement, we experience, uh, which is the act four of Figaro, which happens at night, we experience during the night all those seasons working backwards, unraveling until we arrive back at the point we started, which of course is an idea that comes famously from T.S. Eliot's poem. Uh, the end of all our exploration will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. And so much of Eliot's poem is about cycles and turning and coming back upon ourselves and how the human experience exists in a larger experience of ancestors and those that came before and those that came after. So that's sort of a um, short introduction, um, as short as I can make it. Uh, this next uh, Tuesday, the 9th of October, we're going to have our director slot. It's going to be a room and board on 14th Street, right across from the Source Theater uh, on the terrace. We're hoping for a beautiful, fine summer evening weather. We're in Indian summer. Uh, we're going to have some music, but we're also going to have an, a fascinating panel. I'm going to be humbly trying to keep up, talking about uh, the classical style um, and the musical side of things, but we're also going to have a wonderful poet, Mark McMorris, from Georgetown University, who is a poet himself and also teaches poetics. So he will talk about time and the way he uses time and Ben's time in his own work and also um, about Eliot's use of time. And we'll have Joe Serene, Dr. Joe Serene, who is a professor emeritus from Georgetown in physics, and he'll be talking about the nature of time, the subjective nature of time. We'll talk about Einstein, quantum mechanics, how we understand time now. Um, but uniquely, when I, when I was emailing with, uh, with Professor Serene, he knows the classical style, and uh, the Four Quartets of Eliot are one of his finest works. Um, so, so I'm excited and a bit nervous to be on the same panel with him. The panel will be led by our own Anadini Morales. She's on our board and she collaborates frequently with the in-series um, and she'll be leading the discussion and I'm sure adding her uh, erudite uh, input as well and I'm, I'm so looking forward to, us, to that. That is free. It's at 7 p.m. and we have a dinner sponsored by uh, Ted's, which is right next door, where you can get a 10% discount if you if you join us afterwards for for dinner. Should be a lovely evening, and I hope you can make it. Please just call our office or go online, uh, www.inseries.org, to make a reservation. Again, Figaro and Four Quartets. It opens at Gala Hispanic Theater on October the 20th. It runs to October the 28th. Four performances. Uh, not to be missed, a great cast and uh, a great opportunity to experience um, something something quite new. Um, for now, that's that's uh, in tune for this week. Remember, Rabindranath Tagore tells us that civility is the first work of art, and we can all make our own art in the universe by being more civil to each other. I hope you can join me next time. Check us out on iTunes, subscribe, um, Instagram, Facebook, and see you at the opera. <laughs>